Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. My guest today is fellow Winston-Salem author Megan Bryant, who has written for young children, middle graders, and most recently for the young adult market with her 2017 novel, Glow. Megan, welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio. Thank you so much, Charlie. I'm delighted to be here today. You say on your website that you've lived in Winston-Salem longer than you've lived anywhere else. What brought you here? And as a writer, what do you like about living here? Well, I consider myself so fortunate every day that fate brought me to Winston-Salem. My husband is a professor at Salem College, and we were really at the mercy of the academic job market in terms Mm -hmm. of where we would go when we left New York City. So um, when he was offered the job at Salem, we said yes, and I moved here sight unseen. I had never even (laughs) visited before. And we found it just to be such a welcoming lovely, friendly community, a fabulous place for us to raise our children. And for me as a writer, I cannot imagine a better place in the world. I have found so much support here as an artist, as a writer, and bookmarks. In fact, one of of my favorite things to say about bookmarks is that they treated me like a real writer before I even treated myself like one. (laughs) So they have really shown me such support, almost from the moment they found out that I was here. So um, now that the bookstore is open, it's such an incredible space. It's yeah. uh, my children's favorite place in the city. So we spend a lot of time there. <laughs> That's great. I, I really, for those of you listening who are not from Winston-Salem, we call ourselves the city of arts and innovation. And the whole time that I was growing up, arts in Winston-Salem meant the performing arts and the visual arts. And I feel like now because of bookmarks, that the literary arts really is a big part of that as well in our city, which is, which as writers, is great to feel like you have a literary arts community. You've written a lot of children's books. Many of them don't have a lot of words in them, which is a, a real challenge. One of my favorites, and I got to actually read this book in front of you on opening day at Bookmarks yes. when we had our very first story time, uh, is a picture book called Dump Truck Duck. Can you walk us through the process of how you create a children's picture book from who gets the first idea to how do you work together with the illustrator to now I have a published book sitting on my desk? Oh, yes. Well, Dump Truck Duck is dear to me for many reasons. Um, I, uh, I I have a lot of little collections. Um, and I, since I was a child, I have actually collected buttons, of all things. And when my daughter was three years old, we were playing with the buttons because you can sort them by color, shape, and size. And I poured out a bag of buttons, and into my hand fell a duck button and a dump truck button at the same time. And I looked at that, and I said, dump truck duck. That would be really funny <laughs> if ducks could drive trucks. And my three-year-old said, Mommy, go write that book, go upstairs and write that book right now. And so, you know, I thought, well, that's some pretty important feedback to get. So I went upstairs and I, of course, didn't get it drafted in an afternoon. But um, within a few few months, I felt like I had a, a working draft. And of course, the conventional wisdom is to never, ever write in rhyme. Don't do it. Do everything you can to avoid it. <laughs> but that book really demanded to be written in rhyme. So that was why it, it took me longer, because if, if you can't rhyme well, don't do it. So, of course, it, it takes a, it's a greater investment of time and work, but worth it. Um, so I was really proud of my draft, and I told my daughter it was ready at last, and I sat down to read it to her, and about halfway through, she said, Mommy... 
I don't think it's quite done yet. Oh, no. <laughs> and she was absolutely right. So I went back and I worked in for a few more months. And the next time I had a draft that I felt was ready for my best little critic, um, she loved it. And that was actually the book that got me an agent, which was a really big uh, milestone in my career in terms of helping me um, really take my writing to the next level and sort of break out of my comfort zone and work on bigger and more ambitious ideas. So once I had an agent, of course, Dump Truck Duck went on submission. You know, most people really like to talk about their successes. I really like to talk about my failures mm -hmm. <laughs> because I think that's such an important part of the process. So I'd been selling books pretty regularly. I got an agent. We sold a few things right away in the first month, and then we sold nothing for about four years to the point where I just thought, well, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I'm not really writing what the market is looking for. Maybe I should give it up. And that sort of um, experience really prompted this crisis of faith and a lot of introspection. And I realized no matter what I do with my life and with my days, I will always be writing. I will always yeah. be a writer. So I kept with it. And then all of a sudden in, um, uh, I think it was, let's see. 2015, Dump Truck Duck sold, and then in four months, we sold a total of eight books. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> it was because during those four fallow years where nothing was happening, I was continuing to write all the time. Sure. And all of a sudden, each book and each project found just the right editor at just the right moment, and there's that publishing magic for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what was it like to work with the, the illustrator? Tell us about who, who illustrated Dump Truck Duck and, and to what extent did you collaborate or did he just take your text and put it in illustrations? Yes, yeah, so um, one of the uh, most interesting things about children's publishing is that um, the publishing houses work very hard to keep the um, authors and the illustrators completely separate. <laughs> so um, the woman who illustrated Dump Truck Duck is named Jo DeRuder and she actually lives in England. And of course, um, Thanks to the joys of social media, I was able to find her Facebook page. So I <laughs> liked it as soon as I realized she was giving little teaser spot art of uh, Dump Truck Duck that I'd never even seen before. <laughs> and it turned out that she was just such a lovely, delightful woman. Um, we didn't have any direct contact besides like some surreptitious social media likes um, until after the book was published. Mm. Um, and then, of course... Uh, just a wonderful collaboration when Bookmarks asked me to read Dump Truck Duck at the groundbreaking for yeah. the new store. I had one of those just crazy ideas, and I said, what if I wrote a little bit of new text about the, the ducks building a bookstore? And they said, yes. And I said, what if we asked the illustrator to do some artwork? And they said, yes. And Joe said, yes. And so as a result, she made this incredible piece of art that I love so much of the Dump Truck Duck characters building a bookstore with the Winston-Salem um, city skyline in yeah. the background. Yeah. So, for, for those of you who haven't been to Bookmarks, come to Bookmarks and then go back to the children's section. It's, it's an entire wall. I mean, it's, 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 the text is in, I don't know, 80-point type or something, <laughs> yes. and, and the illustration is um, more than life-size. I think those ducks are bigger than any actual ducks I've seen. Uh, and the kids just love it. It's mm -hmm. just a, it just creates this wonderful, warm, welcoming, unique space, which we're all just crazy about. Uh, I love that you have books, and this is not something I can claim in all the books that I've written. You've, you have books that are not shaped like rectangles. Um, who comes up with the design concept to not shape a book like a rectangle? And, and how does that choice affect you as a writer, affect the words that you put into it, or does it affect you? 
Yes. So I, um, I really, in many ways, I got my start working on um, simple paper, paper engineering. Mm-hmm. So I've always been really intrigued by books that have another feature to draw children in. Um, yeah. You know, one of the reasons I'm so drawn to writing for children and for young people of all ages is um, what, a, what a privilege it is to help kids find that book that sparks that love of reading. Yeah. Because certainly every obstacle, every tough time in my life has been eased by either being able to read for enjoyment and escape or be, to be able to read for more information to help me troubleshoot and solve whatever issue was at hand. So um, I really, uh, I have a little artist studio. People ask me a lot if I uh, do my own illustrations. And the answer is no, I'm certainly not a professional artist, but I love to create artwork. And I have a, a drafting table in my writer's room mm-hmm. uh, where I have my cardstock and my foam core and my X-Acto knives and of course my glitter and foil <laughs> and I will um, I will make mock-ups. So one of my uh, most recent books is called My Snow Globe and it's in the shape of a snow globe oh, cool. and each um, each page has a different die cut shape so that as you open the book, you feel like you're moving deeper and deeper into the snow globe mm-hmm. landscape. And uh, that book has the dubious distinction of being the first and only book I've written entirely on my cell phone. <laughs> <laughs> and it's very short. It's about 50, 55 words total. Um, but once I had that draft down and a, and a vision of what each scene would be, it was then very important to see, will this even work in practice? So I, I make my own little um, mock-ups or dummy books, as we call them. Yep. And then I made a few that were as nice as my non-artistic self could possibly get them. And those were the ones we sent out to different publishers when yep. it went on submission. So uh, for my books, at least, that part of the process starts with me. One of the things I love about that is that that's something that, a child cannot get from a digital book. You can't, I mean, you have to have a physical book mm-hmm. to experience that kind of interplay of, of, of paper and ink and shapes and texture and everything yes. else. And, and anything to me that helps. And I think children really more than any other readers are drawn to physical books for that very reason, um, that it engages more senses. And when you're doing the kind of thing you're talking about, you're really engaging lots of senses. <laughs> You wrote some middle grade books about Greek mythology, and once again, there's a really heavy interplay of text and design. Tell us a little bit about those books and how they differ from traditional retellings of the Greek myths. Yes, well, that was a really uh, phenomenal uh, project that I I was just so um, privileged to work on with Scholastic several years ago. Um, The books are called Mythlopedia, and I wrote Oh My Gods and She's All That, about the Greek (laughs) gods and goddesses. And the vision for those books was what if the Greek gods and goddesses had social media? Is there a way to take these stories, which are so many millennia old, could we update them? Could we make them really relevant to kids' lives today? And of course, those stories are so full of drama and intrigue. You know, what they, you know, amazing that they had all that scandal without social media. They really <laughs> set the bar high for the rest of us. Um, so it was just a lot of fun to, to sort of play with it if you know, Zeus and Hera could text, if right. they had Facebook profiles. So I worked very, very closely with the team at Scholastic. That was one where um, they had image researchers, they had fact checkers, making sure that I hadn't uh, gone too far out in retellings of, of the yeah. mythology. Um, one of our big challenges was the um, 
like little friends listing for each god and goddess <laughs> because uh, depending on the myth, they're either best friends or madly in love or warring. So right, we were right. like, who goes where? How do we categorize them? But um, the feedback we've gotten certainly from students and from schools is that it's 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 a great companion for when kids are wanting to dig a little bit deeper into mythology, if they're especially if they're not quite ready for um, some of the more formal versions of those tales. Yeah. So it was a I lot just, of fun to work on. I, I love the idea of, uh, this just sounds like an idea for a novel, of a person whose job is to fact check mythology. That's <laughs> yes. just, that's fantastic. Yes. <laughs> um, so let's move along to Glow. This is your first book for young adults. It was published last year. Um, you're writing now all of a sudden for a very different audience, and we were talking a little bit before the show, you said you have a lot of adult readers of, of GLOW, including at least two in this household. <laughs> um, but you're writing now for a very different audience. What, what was your biggest concern moving from writing books for, for much younger children to really you know, a full-on novel for, for young adults and even adults? Um, that's, that's a great question. Certainly, um, when I first started off in children's publishing many years ago, the conventional wisdom was often that you should find your age group, mm -hmm. that every um, children's writer has an inner child of a certain age, <laughs> and that you should write for that inner child. If that's a picture book for three to five-year-olds, if that's a teenager writing young adult, um, and that just has never really rung true to me. Um, for me, it's really... What's the idea that I'm most interested in and who is the best audience for that idea? Yeah. And certainly the story of the Radium Girls is uh, very, very bleak and very dark. And the, the question, of course, there was, um, you know, when I wanted to write about them, would I write about it for a, a teenage audience or would I write about it for adults? And I was ultimately drawn to writing young adult for many reasons, largely because the Radium Girls themselves were teenagers mm -hmm. um, when they were painting the uh, watch dials. Um, and also because I feel that... Um, our history is just so very important, and I saw this as a wonderful opportunity to reach young readers about a corner of history that they might not otherwise know about. And it's been a big surprise and also just a joy to have heard from so many adults who have found the book, and it may be that they haven't read much YA before, and now they, there's a whole area of publishing open to them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned the book is based on the story of the Radium Girls, which some of our listeners may not know about. So tell, tell us the basic setup of GLOW, not just the historical setup, but just the way you, you present the novel in the, in the first few chapters. Yes. So um, GLOW has a dual perspective. So there's two main characters, and one is a modern girl named Julie who has recently graduated from high school, and her entire life has crumbled at the same time. Yeah. She had these big plans for college, and a financial crisis in her family has forced her to empty out the college savings account to save the home for foreclosure. So while all her friends are going off to college, she is working minimum wage jobs and just seeing sort of no future for herself. So she's shopping at a thrift store with a friend and she sees a painting that um, really speaks to her and it's just a couple dollars. So she buys it and she hangs it on her wall. And when she gets home that night and turns the lights out, something um, unexpected happens. The image on the painting completely transforms. It has an entire other image in the dark that's not visible during the daytime. Mm -hmm. So Julie is a very artistic and scientific person, so this immediately piques her interest, and she's wondering, who did this? Who is this anonymous artist? 
How did they do it? What technique was used? What kind of supplies? And she is determined to solve this mystery. So she sets off on this quest throughout the great state of New Jersey to try <laughs> to find more of these paintings. And um, they're at several different types of thrift stores. Sometimes she's lucky and finds one. Sometimes she's not. But as she finds each painting, she realizes the images on them are just increasingly disturbing and nightmarish. And she slowly begins to unravel the story of the radium girls. And interspersed between um, Julie's narrative are letters that a radium girl is writing to her sweetheart, who is overseas during World War I. The radium girls, um, were, um, they were painting um, watch dials for the war effort. Now, because of World War I required so much um, trench warfare and night fighting, one thing that they very much needed was glow-in-the-dark or luminous products so that soldiers could be able to coordinate their movements in the dark. And what most people um, may not be aware of is that the very first glow-in-the-dark products in the world were made with powdered radium. Back during the time when radium and radioactivity was all the rage, before the general public knew just how dangerous and deadly it was. Yep. So the radium girls were a group of young women um, who were as young as 11 and generally in their teens or early 20s who had these... Um, these jobs that were just so coveted and seen as such an honor to have where they sat in these gorgeous, big, bright, airy studios and spent their entire days painting um, with radioactive paint. And where this became even more dangerous than you can imagine is that the paint was very valuable and the kind of brushes they needed to use were very tiny. So rather than wash the brush after each number they painted, the um, young women painting the dials were advised to tip the brush by putting the bristles in their mouth and reshaping right. it with their mouths. Right. And of course, ra radium is a deadly poison. Um, it has the same chemical structure as calcium, so it's, um, it's considered a bone seeker, which means when it gets inside your body, your body doesn't quite know what it is, but it looks like calcium, so the body deposits it in your bones mm. and in your teeth. And once it's there, there's no way to get it out again. Yeah. Um, would you read us a short passage from the book? Yes, thank you. This is uh, near the beginning of the book when Julie finds her very first painting. Much later, there was a full moon gleaming in the sky when I pulled up in front of my house, but it was still dark enough that you could pretend not to notice the peeling paint, the dandelion spawning across the yard, the for sale by owner sign that had been on display for nearly a year. Even though my mom was obviously home, her car was in the driveway, the house had an air of emptiness, a lonely feeling like no one lived there, which had crept over it with such stealth that mom and I hadn't noticed until it was too late to stop it. If I was quiet enough, I could get to my own room without waking her, I hoped. With my paper-wrapped painting tucked under my arm, I tiptoed up the stairs, stepping over the creaky one like I still had a curfew. That was another thing that had snuck up on us, the end of my curfew. I think it died on the day I wrote that check to my mom, just over $200,000 after the penalty tax and administration fees. Anybody who can write a check that big is way too old for a curfew. The money was much more of a security blanket than my sketchbook. I used to wrap myself in thoughts of it, imagining paint-splattered studios or gleaming labs, the college education that would determine my entire future. To think that there'd been a time when deciding which college to attend was the biggest problem I faced. Then my room was right in front of me, the door closed like always. 
I hung up my new painting before doing anything else, taking down the mirror over the dresser so I could hoist the frame up on the wall. The first hang was crooked, of course, and it would have been easier with someone to help. But this was a job I had to do myself, easing the frame by degrees until it was at least a little centered. I stood back to inspect my work. Yes, centered. At least something around here was. I turned off the light. I fell into the bed. And then I sat up. In the seconds between turning off the light and getting into bed, something in my room had changed. Something was not right. My painting, what had happened to it? Suddenly I wasn't tired anymore, not even a little. I got out of bed and crept closer to the painting, which glowed with ghostly luminescence. Like a moth to the flame, I approached it without hesitation, my hand reaching to touch, violating every art museum's cardinal rule. (laughs) In the dark, the canvas had transformed. The empty sky now glittered with stars, each one shining brighter than the real stars out my window. The wheat field had morphed into an ancient rose garden just past full bloom. Wilting petals had started to fall, drifting past thorns that jutted from gnarled stems. But the biggest change was that my solo aviator was no longer alone. Now there was a girl pressed behind him, her arms wrapped around his waist, her head resting on his back. Her scarf trailed behind her, fluttering in the wind. The expression on her face was what really intrigued me, that look of perfect peace, of utter contentment, of true love. The two people in the airplane were like puzzle pieces that had finally been found and fit together. Staring at her face, I wondered if anyone would ever look at me like that. I stepped back from the painting and made my eyes slip out of focus so that it was just a glowing patch on the wall with all the details blurred. When I focused my eyes again, I saw something else. A message written in the stars, correspondence by constellation. It read, Mon amour est plus grand que les étoiles. I had to you know, draw on my high school French to translate that portion of your book. <laughs> um, this is such a beautiful moment when she discovers that, that painting, uh, that hidden painting below, below what she thought was the painting that she had bought. But it, earlier in that, uh, that reading, you get at something which I think is a, a common and important theme in, in YA literature, and that is this idea of the isolated protagonist. Your um, protagonist, Julie, is isolated for a pretty grown-up reason, that is, finances, um, have, have sort of set her apart, as you, as you mentioned, from her, from her friends, from her colleagues. There seems to be a, a little tension between her and her best friend that's a, that's a result of that. Uh, tell us how you think using an isolated protagonist helps you connect with um, teenage readers. Well, I think, uh, you know, certainly the teenage years are a time when we come into this area of maturity, you know, in fits and starts. And some of that is realizing that we really are alone in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, part of it is that moment over, you know, a few years where you start to realize that, you know, everything that has always felt so same and familiar is not going to be that way. And sometimes for kids like Julie, it happens very suddenly and in a way that can be um, almost traumatic. For other kids, it's more gradual. But you realize there's a moment for everybody where we sort of cross that bridge and we leave childhood and move into adulthood. And we each do that in our own time and in our own way. Mm -hmm. And so I think especially for teenagers, um, for them to know they're really, um, they're not alone, just to try to foster some sense of 
connection, you yeah. know, and, and, and I think that's one reason why we read is to feel less alone in the world. Mm -hmm. And I think the teenage years are often a time when we feel that uh, aloneness for the first time and it can be very unsettling and, um, you know, one thing when you're a teenager is that you live so much in the moment. It's all very now, and yet there's a lot of pressure, and the future feels very hazy. Um, and so any way that we can help kids realize whatever is to come, to foster a sense of resiliency, whatever setbacks are coming for you, if you keep at it, you'll be able to make them through, find a different path, a different road forward. It's just such an important time to sort of help kids and, and, and lift them up as they are learning those lessons. Julie has a best friend, Lauren, and Lydia has a sister, right? Yes, Liza? two sisters. Um, mm -hmm. And these sort of two pairs of women, 100 years apart, seem to me to have, at least in the opening chapters of the book, somewhat parallel relationships. I mean, there are similarities and there are differences. Um, but what do, you, what do you want a young reader to take away from that comparing of female relationships in one century and in another century with, with women who are of very similar age? Well, I will be honest, um, as I was writing, I didn't realize until the book was nearly done that it had such a focus on um, relationships between women. Mm -hmm. um, Julie and Lydia actually both live in um, homes that are headed up by a single mother for different yep. reasons. Yep. Um, and I, I just, I think because the Radium Girls, you know, and my little pet peeve is that we call them the radium girls when they were adult women, yep. <laughs> but we'll stick with the nomenclature. Um, you know, the radium girls were all women. And so the book sort of naturally evolved to really focus on the stories of women. Um, and, you know, both biological sisterhood and the sisterhood that can form through friendships, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and that doesn't mean, of course, that these relationships are all beautiful, sunny walks in the park. There's certainly um, conflict and difficulty. The question, of course, for the characters and for all women is when you have that conflict in a relationship, how do you move past it? Right. Can you heal the relationship and make it something deeper and stronger and more beautiful, or is it irreparably damaged? And that's something that certainly Lydia struggles with, with her two sisters and Julie with her friend, um, Lauren, because they're certainly not on the same on the same plane anymore. As I was yeah, saying, yeah. we all have different times of being propelled into adulthood, and, and Julie's just reached her sense of isolation before Lauren's gone through hers. So it's mm -hmm. harder for them to connect now, really at the time when Julie most needs that connection. One of the other ways to me in which this story is about women, just aside from the very obvious um, results of working with radium in a, in a factory, but you, in, in the first chapter, especially with Lydia, um, the first letter that we see, you drop a number of hints that the young modern reader might pick up on about the different place of women in society in 1917 versus 2017. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how you managed to incorporate that without sort of stopping to give a lecture about yes, you know what, what the place of women was in society and how you think your readers will, will respond to that? Well, one of the things that was... Um, so exciting for me about writing this book was, of course, I think we're all very familiar with the iconic Rosie the Riveter from sure. World War II and showing us how women, um, once men were overseas fighting, women really worked and, and took to the workplace. And then, you know, they weren't really, they weren't eager to go back 
Mm-hmm. And, and to lose that opportunity to work. And I think um, one of the things that really surprised me in my research for this book was that there was a whole generation of women who did the same thing during World War I. And one of my uh, favorite sources was a book called uh, Rosie's Mother, The Forgotten Women Workers of World War I. Yeah. So, of course, um, you know, in many ways, women many women have longed for the opportunity for work outside the home. And that was so exciting for these young women. Um, they were thrilled not just to have the opportunity to work, to be paid for their work, to have that sense of independence, um, but also to be contributing to the war effort in a yeah. very real and meaningful way. Um, and I think um, we have really the past century, the past 125 years has seen such rapid change. It's hard for us to comprehend sometimes just how much is different now. Mm -hmm. And I I think it's also, as I was saying earlier, so important for us to know our history, to know where we've been, so that we can make wise and informed choices moving forward. And I think it's it's so good for young women to understand that as well, just that, you know, now it's expected that women will work. A hundred years ago, no, that was a new a new opportunity for so many young girls and women. You talked a little bit about some of the research that you've done, and I just, you know, every page, of, especially of the historical side of this novel, is just teeming with realistic details. And not, I mean, not in a way that gets in the way of the story, but it just puts you absolutely in the moment. Can you tell us a little bit about how do you find out about tipping the brushes and all, all of these wonderful details? What, what was your research process like? Well, this was one of those books where um, it's really, you know, falling down the rabbit hole Mm -hmm. and trying to figure out, um, (laughs) have I researched enough? I could research for the rest of my life. You know, when do I have enough information to write this book? Um, But I certainly, when I uh, research a topic such as the Radium Girls, I try to do a very broad overview first. And uh, I just do a lot of sort of um, internet reading, just, Mm -hmm. you know, follow the links not taking anything too seriously, you know, because we've got to make sure we've got our sources correct, um, but just really getting a very broad overview of the time period. And what I find is that that, that then helps um, with determining the secondary sources and the primary sources that will be most useful. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very important to me, since this is historical fiction, that um, I wanted everything to be accurate and correct, but I didn't want to appropriate any of the stories of the real Radium Girls. I right. felt that that would just be um, wrong to do, to try to take someone, a real a real young woman, yep. and then fictionalize her. So I, um, I, I tried to... Um, stay with accounts of the time rather than first-person accounts from the radium girls themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just found many wonderful sources. I found this great old tattered book called Images of Healing that had um, photographs of what doctor's offices looked like at the time oh, wow. and dentist's office and the sort of tools that would be used for a blood draw, things like that. Um, I found, I, you know, I love the details, so I found the weather records for 1917. And, you know, so that if, because Lydia's letters are dated, if she was writing about the weather on a particular date, I wanted to make sure it was accurate. So I I went to that level of detail in the research. But again, I mean, also have to be careful that you don't get bogged down with too many details. So it's really knowing now that I have this wealth of knowledge, what's most interesting, what's most important to include. And of course, that's where, you know, great beta readers and great editors come along with some feedback and let you know if you've put in a little too much. <laughs> yeah. I have, I've had very similar experiences in research for um, my, my newest novel, which will come out in 2020, is uh, 
this a lot of it set in New York City in the first part of the 20th century mm -hmm. and and I would get obsessed with you know what's the what was the weather like on that day how how did if you were going to take public transportation from this place to that place what was the transportation? How long did it take to get there? What did it cost? And of course, many of those details, as you said, don't necessarily make it into the text. Right. But it gives you that that feeling in your mind that, okay, I now have the authority um, and the knowledge to write about, about this time period. Yes. You mentioned um, that Lydia's story is told in a very different form mm -hmm. from Julie's story. It's told in the epistolary form. Why did you choose to, to tell her story um, instead of in sort of a standard YA first person narrative, the way the way Julie speaks in a, a form of letters to her, uh, I think it's fiance who is who is off in the trenches in World War One. Uh, that's uh, that's a great a great insightful question. I had a few reasons for making that choice. Um, first and foremost, I wanted that I wanted to really capture that immediacy of the fact that there was a very serious global conflict going on. And I thought, wow, what, what better way to really capture that than to have, her, um, to have her writing to her sweetheart who is overseas in harm's way at every moment mm -hmm. of every day. Mm -hmm. And sort of that pressure hanging over her head, it also certainly gave her a greater emotional stake in the work she was doing. Um, you know, I think I really wanted it to be very clear that her work as a radium dial painter was because of this war. You know, um, one of the things that I think is so tragic about how the way the Radium Girl story was largely forgotten for decades is that they were war heroes just as much as soldiers. You know, sure. they, they would not have died the way that they did if not for um, the need for the radium dials for the war. Um, so um, that being said, I also, you know, mindful that I was writing for younger audience, I thought the letters would help set apart a secondary narrator in an even larger way than just writing in a sort of period yeah, language. Yeah. Um, so that I thought the, the letters could do that. And then of course, there's always that like little surreptitious joy and sense of like, ooh, should I be reading someone else's mail? So that's, I think, yeah. a fun part too. I think there's an immediacy to epistolary novels mm -hmm. too. And, and as you said, it gives you the opportunity to, in maybe in a more realistic way, to access that, that voice of 1917. How did you find out how a young woman in 1917 would express herself. In, did you read letters of the period, or I did. There, um, there are many collections of letters from the period, which are such a valuable resource. Um, and certainly, um, I, I read a lot of um, even magazine pieces at the time just to get a sense of what the culture felt like, what you know, what advice was being given to young women, things like that. And there's in particular, there's a, a wonderful book called Letters from a Lost Generation. Um, which are the collected letters of Vera Britton, who is um, who is an English woman, and she wrote letters almost daily to her brother, her sweetheart, and two male friends who were fighting in the war. And all four of them died during mm -hmm. World War One. Mm -hmm. And she kept all their letters, and she got her letters back. So it's just an incredible, incredible. Um, and uh, just heart-wrenching collection of letters to read yep. as the war starts, and then it just drags on and on, and the losses were so tremendous and so high. So I will uh, say I took a little artistic license, and Lydia's letters are longer than most letters of the period sure. would be. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, she had a lot to say. <laughs> For those of you out there listening, please write letters and diaries on paper with ink so that 
100 years from now, people will be able to look back at our culture and understand us a little bit better. It, it scares me that so much of what we create now in terms of these documents that were so valuable to you in crafting this novel yes. can can be gone with the flick of a switch oh, um, so in, in our current society. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love objects in books that can have multiple meanings. I put a lot of them in my books. Um, and to me, the painting that Julie discovers, and then eventually paintings, but, but I'm thinking especially about the first one, um, is one of those things that has, you know, it, it quite obviously is something different in the day and something different in the night. But tell us about some of the, the different things that you think that painting might symbolize. Uh, the first painting that she finds? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, well, certainly um, it, it has this feeling of escape to mm -hmm. it. Right. Um, and when, she, when Julie buys the painting, what draws her to it is that there is... Um, there's just a man in an airplane flying away, and she wants to escape from her own life and her own circumstances so much that she sees that, and it really speaks to her. The way, you know, art is, our responses to art are so individualistic. Um, and then, of course, the um, one of the mysteries of the book is is who is creating these paintings mm -hmm. because we end up having the three sisters who are all employed at radium dial and each one has the opportunity to access the radium for the paint each one um, considers herself artistic in different ways yeah. so that's one of the central mysteries so the question becomes when um you know when the painting transforms and there's a second passenger in that plane a young woman who is she and why is she trying to escape? Mm -hmm. And certainly um, there's other um, images. The fact that a rose garden appears has another, um, is another element, the flowers and roses, things that wither and die, especially things of beauty like a young woman would be. Another way the story reminds me of my own novels, and this kind of connects to the painting as well, is the the use of artifacts, of physical artifacts, as a window through which to view History. I mean, she has that painting. Did you have? You talked about the the books and the research you did. I mean, did you see any of these watches? Did you see? Did you see anything that's a that's a physical artifact that really sort of took you back to that time period? Yes, I have a great story about that. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, this book was. It was both the book of my heart and it was the hardest book I have written to date. Mm -hmm. It um, challenged me in all sorts of ways because, of course, I needed to do so much research about um, the time period, about art, about science, about radioactivity, about medicine. Fun fact, I got myself kicked out of uh, Brenner's Hospital doing my research. <laughs> <laughs> First time I got kicked out of anywhere for a book. Um, but it was really, it was such a challenge. And because I also wanted the book to capture the way the past influences the present, mm -hmm. there needed to be a lot of overlap. So I had all sorts of lists and charts about what's happening where and what foreshadowing and what reveal. And it ended up feeling at times just very confusing and even overwhelming. And I reached this point when I was about halfway through and what was written was a huge mess and what wasn't written was really intimidating and daunting. And I just thought, I may not have the ability to write this book the way it deserves to be written. Mm -hmm. It's I've bitten off more than I can chew. It's going to be 
too hard, it's too much, a better writer than me should write this book. And I just was, you know, as close to despair as you can be, just thinking I, I can't do it, I can't finish what I started. And I, um, this book really demanded almost to be written at night. So my best work mm. writing it was in the dark, late into the night. And after dinner and after getting the kids to bed, I went to, um, I went to work and I found something on my desk. And I opened a box my husband had left there. And inside was a real radium watch oh, wow. that he had purchased for me. And I just sat there marveling at it. And I opened the back of the watch, and there was a fingerprint inside the case. Um, Who knows whose fingerprint it was, but I like to imagine it could have been a radium girl's who painted it. And the best part was that I could wind it up, and it would tick, 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 tick. So I would sit there at night, and I would wind up that watch, and I would listen to it ticking, and I would just think, you know, I'm going to finish this novel or die trying. (laughs) Julie has what I find to be a remarkable thought when she sees the secret behind the second painting that she acquires, when this is the first of the paintings that is starting to have a much darker side to the glow-in-the-dark part of it. And she says, I forced myself to stare until it became familiar the way bad things can be absorbed until you forget just how awful they really are. How would you like that line to resonate for your readers? Um, I think that one of our survival skills as people when things are very hard is to sort of acclimate, mm-hmm. which can be very good in terms of getting through a terrible time, but can also be a bit of a danger. Mm-hmm. If you get used to something that is bad and you accept that as the best it can be, you might not keep trying to find ways out. So certainly um, everything from a toxic work environment to a bad relationship, once you sort of accept that something is bad and you start to think that maybe everything else will be bad too. So my, um, my, my thought behind that line and my hope was that to just be aware, maybe there are times when you can't seek out a better situation, but certainly don't take it for granted that there isn't a better option for you somewhere. Yeah, I mean, to me, that line just resonates of, of current events. I think of the Parkland kids. I think of women who finally stand up to not being treated properly in the workplace yes. instead of saying, well, you just get used to it. That's the way things are. And, yes. and so I just I thought it was very powerful. Thank you. Um, there's a theme of absence in GLOW. Um, Walter obviously is absent from Lydia. He's, he's off in the trenches fighting World War One. Julie's father is absent. You talked about other um, absent fathers. And of course, Lydia and Julia, Julie, are absent from each other by this century of, of disconnect. What do you think the novel has to say about absence, and, and how does that theme speak to, to young readers in particular? Well, I think, um, you know, we live in very fractured times. It's very unusual for people to stay in one city or one state for their entire lives. It's unusual to stay at one job. You know, um, we're, it's, it's a transitory stage of the world, I think, where as the world gets smaller, in many ways, we're spreading farther and farther apart. And social media keeps us connected, but not at the level of in the same room connected that um, human um, humans have enjoyed for most of human history. So I think um, in many ways the book sort of grapples with that, especially um, going back to that sort of overall theme of young people sort of moving out from home, moving on to embrace their adulthood and where that will lead them. 
We like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. You should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, and hopefully they'll give us all something to think about and give our listeners a little insight into you and into your writing. So if you're ready, we will begin the speed round. Okay. What word do you love to work into your writing? Luminous. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? Um, it would have to be a phrase, and I'm going to say rolled her eyes. <laughs> <laughs> Where's your favorite place to write? Uh, I have an office at home that is just perfectly set up just the way I need it. Quiet and peace and set off from the rest of everything. Where could you never write? I'm not very good at writing in coffee shops. I need privacy. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? <laughs> I use too many exclamation marks. <laughs> <laughs> What's the first book you remember reading? It was a book called Miss Susie about a squirrel and her um, efforts to collect nuts. What are you reading now? I'm reading a book called Raising White Kids. What book would you like to have written? I would have loved to have written A Wrinkle in Time. Mm -hmm. What sort of book would you like to write but probably never will? A murder mystery. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? I needed this book. <laughs> This has been Inside the Writer Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. My guest today has been Megan Bryant, whose book Glow is available wherever books are sold, and, of course, you can find signed copies at Bookmarks. Megan, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. On the next episode of Inside the Writer's Studio, we're planning a Christmas surprise. So be sure to tune in on December 20th. Until then, thanks for listening. And may you read with wonder and write with passion. <laughs>